this, no good deed goes unpunished. So you're basically saying that you're an agent of the state. You can always do this in such a way that the patient can't refuse. Who has the duty to report the loss of consciousness? Who sets the standard of care? How am I supposed to know what the standard of care is? The tone in the country has changed. This isn't going in our direction. If you haven't seen this, you're not an emergency doctor. I mean, the smart ER doc, you get what you want. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's the December Risk Management Monthly, and we have a bit of uh, something different for you this month. This was a live recording of Risk Management Monthly at the 2008 Essentials of Emergency Medicine Conference. Now, the plan was that we were going to have Rick and myself and uh, Greg in front of the crowd and uh, you know do our thing and then take some questions, but it turns out that Rick's son was married that Friday night, so he couldn't come and play with us, and so instead... We got Jim Perog, and Jim is a uh, director of a very large emergency department in here in Southern California. And so we did a little thing, and then we took some questions, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. So here we go with Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, and Jim Perog from Southern California. Let's go. And remember, this is a live recording, so the audio sounds a little bit different, but it's still quite intelligible, unlike some of the comments made. Let's do it. All right, let me tell you what this is about. So each month, Rick and Greg and I put together Risk Management Monthly, Greg being the monthly expert on risk management. This month, Rick couldn't come because his son got married on Friday and there's a thing called a wedding or something. Actually, he was going to come and then his wife found out and said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and actually, Greg was at the wedding. How was the wedding? Wedding was excellent. Thank excellent. you very much. And so Rick said, look, I need to find somebody to substitute for him. And he went through who's here at the course and he came up with a number of different names, but he chose here Jim, and the last name was Pyrog? Pyrog. Pyrog. Right. Jim, I guess, is the director of a very large emergency department, 100,000 visits, and does lots of medical malpractice. So he said, have Jim come up and chat. So we're going to go over this outline that Rick has about a few things, and then Greg will take it over from there. All right? Let's start, Mel, by talking about the issue which is on the table today. We're going to have some specific articles we're going to refer to. But the question is something called duty to third party. That is, the patient themselves, you have a clear and present duty to. No one has a problem with that. But there are two kinds of people floating around out there. One is a known and predictable third party. One is a unknown but still predictable third party. So there are those people we know. And let me give you some examples. If you treat a gentleman for gonorrhea and you don't ask about who he's having sex with, that person has now exposed a certain number of people who he knows to potential medical problems. You have an obligation, and part of that obligation to that third party is taken care of in most places by the county health department who reads the screens and then proceeds. You have an obligation as the emergency physician to speak to the patient about the fact that the county health department will be calling you. They will also be calling your contact. I usually at this point explain to them, maybe you better lay some groundwork here, Jack, because they will be out there. But this is a duty to not the patient sitting in front of you, but to third parties who are the wider society. Let me just give you the bellwether case of duty to third party 
and we need to talk about this one before we get into these other issues. The Bellwether case is called Tarasoff versus the Regents of the University of California. What happened in Tarasoff is at UCLA, a psychiatrist was seeing a young man for several years. As part of that seeing this young man, he had rape-slaying fantasies about young Miss Tarasoff, who was a student at UCLA. And so what happened was, after about two years of this, he did kill Miss Tarasoff. Now, the affirmative defense of UCLA at that moment in time was doctor-patient relationship, we couldn't tell anybody, we couldn't talk to anybody. This went all the way to the California Supreme Court. And the California Supreme Court decision has set a tone for the entire nation on this. Here's what they said. This is what they concluded. Number one, the doctor-patient relationship is special, but it is not sacred. You can violate confidentiality if there is reason to believe that a third party is at risk. And in this case, they said, you knew or should have known that there was voiced aggression against a specific person. Nobody was suggesting that the psychiatrist had to drive out to Ms. Tarasoff's home. But he could have called the police. He could have notified. And what the family said, of course, was, had we known that our daughter was at risk, we would have made decisions about where she went to school, moving out of state, all these other sorts of things. Of course, that went on. The young woman died. And UCLA lost that case. And so essentially that law, the Supreme Court of California basically said, you do have a duty to known third parties for you to act in their defense. And I think that that's well understood. Where do we see this in emergency medicine? How many people have seen somebody in the department who's been beaten up? Now, they're usually beaten up by who? The dude brothers, some dude or dad dude, okay? But occasionally they will give you a name. When they say, you know, I've had guys sitting there, pounding their fists, say, I'm going to kill Jimmy Jones. You know what? You mark on that chart, threats made against Jimmy Jones, local authorities informed, and you have now discharged your responsibility to the patient, to the named third party, and to the society in general. But when you know that somebody may be at risk, the name of somebody do not feel afraid to pass that on to the authorities. That was what the Tarasoff ruling really meant. Known third parties is where we're going. Now, that's case number one. Let's move to case number two, and that's unknown but predicted third parties, and I will give you the case. A young man has got a corneal abrasion and some sort of injury, and as part of his therapy, he is given... Vicodin tablets. He goes out and drives. Unfortunately, he hits a school bus. And now action is taken by the families of the kids on that bus, saying, Doctor, you knew or should have known that by giving a mind-altering medication, you were putting other human beings at risk. You didn't know the names of those people, but what you should have understood is that you are putting them at risk. So what does this mean to you? That means every time you write a prescription for a mind-altering medicine, anything that requires a DEA number, somewhere in your instructions and somewhere on that bottle it ought to say, 
no driving, no drinking, no use of machinery, that sort of thing. If they do it, you can't stop them from doing it. But you have an obligation to the wider society to inform. All right? So, Jim, what do you do in your hospital? What do you suggest to your docs when you're giving out sedative hypnotics or pain medications before the patient leaves? Do you have something on your charts that says, we told them that they could crash their car? And First of all, we don't have anything on our charts. The prescriptions may or may not have it. We've got an automatic prescription writer, so they may have that. Now you're stimulating me to check that. But clearly the pharmacists in our area all put it down on the prescriptions, the warnings for these various sedative hypnotics. I think they do a pretty good job, and it's a lot of information they write, but most of the Vicodin, Norco, mind-changing, sedative-type medications will have that from the local pharmacy. There's only two kinds of medication at the 95% level that are ever given out in emergency departments to take home, particularly in smaller and rural communities where the pharmacy isn't open all the time. We write for a Vicodin script or something like that. It's a small six or eight tablets kind of thing which is given out. If you're going to be dispensing medication, which is what's happening in this situation, then there is some affirmative duty on you to make sure that the patient is informed. I would ask you to go back and look and see what's actually happening in your department. Are the nurses putting the sticker on that bottle? Are you telling the patient? We actually have it written into our discharge instructions whenever we give out anything that has a DEA number, it's automatic, that that goes on the piece of paper that the patient takes home. Again, if they follow those, terrific. If they don't, at least you've done your part to try and get them to behave. Why don't we read these couple of cases? Yeah, well, this is from the New England Journal from July of 2008, so this year. Which, which journal? Uh, the New England Urinal? Uh, no, we're not worthy, sir. We're not worthy. Okay, this is big time. Go ahead. So Rick summarizes it like this. By way of background, a study by the CDC in West Virginia found the high prevalence of prescription drugs, especially opiate analgesics and depression and antidepressants. And they found <coughs> these in lots of people that have been fatally injured. We think about alcohol and fatal injuries, but a lot of people who crash their car and kill themselves and other people often have these prescriptions on board at a rate of around 10% of the time in some of these studies. So maybe that's a significant factor in a lot of car accidents. So this was a big deal. So this was a Massachusetts Supreme Court, I guess, decision that had occurred in 2007, and it's Coombs versus Florino, 2007. So here are the facts of the case. At the time of the incident, David Saka was a 72-year-old, had a diagnosis of asbestosis, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, high blood pressure, and metastatic lung cancer, and was under the care of Dr. Florino. On March 22, 2002, while driving a car, Sucker and or S-A-C-C-A, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, hit and killed 10-year-old Kevin Coombs. So this is obviously a horribly tragic case. At the time of the accident, the patient had prescriptions from Florino for oxycodone and oxazepam and some other drugs as well, so <coughs> anti-narcotics and other drugs that can produce sedative and hypnosis. The trial experts concluded that the sedating effects of the drugs could be more severe in older patients and that the standard of care for a primary care physician includes warning elderly patients or chronically ill patients about the potential side effects of these drugs and the effect on their ability to drive. This went all the way up, including the Supreme Court in Massachusetts, but in this case, the trial judge dismissed the case against the patient's doctor, stating that the absence of some special <coughs> relationship between the patient and the physician meant that he didn't really have a duty to inform them. Let me talk to you about this for one second. This is called standing in court. 
do you have standing to bring action? Do you have some relationship that says you have a right to sue the doctor? Basically, what the trial judge said was, the family of the dead child had no standing. We understand why if the patient had been killed, he had standing to go after his doctor, but this was the 10-year-old. So the real question at that moment in time was, do you have standing? And what happened was, this went right up the chain to the appellate court and then to the Supreme Court, to the state of Massachusetts. And of course, Tarasoff was referenced continuously in that discussion. And then finally, on a split decision, the Massachusetts Supreme Court said, sorry, doctor, we think that they do have standing. You do have obligations. Now, you notice they didn't comment on the facts of the case. He may have informed him. They may have done this. They may have done that. But what they gave opinion on was a question of law, which said, we believe that you do have standing and so they remanded it back to the lower court for actual trial. But the point is, it reaffirmed the Tarasoff decision, which said, you know what? You have an obligation, duty, to third parties. That's where that went. Let's do the other case. If this sort of follows along from that, and what we're talking about, pharmacists, and Jim was saying, so there's another one called Cotham versus CVS Pharmacy. So this was about the duty of a pharmacist to tell the customers about the side effects of the prescribed medications. So in this case, the Supreme Court determined that the pharmacist had no such duty. The court relied heavily on a case involving the duty of a pharmaceutical company to warn a patient about side effects. And in the later case, it was determined that physicians, as the learned intermediary, have the duty to inform the patients about the side effects of the drug. <coughs> but the pharmacist didn't, only the drug company themselves. You know, when you think about that phrase, the learned intermediary, First of all, I'm not sure we're that learned, number one. And are we just the intermediary in this process? But that was the question in this case. And sort of the bottom line is, if you're involved in dispensing medications, you're involved with the side effects of those medications. Fortunately, emergency medicine isn't bad this way, because 90% of what we give out is 10 days of an antibiotic and five days of a pain medicine. It came home to me when I was president of the college. I had to deal with the pharmaceutical industry. And they mentioned to me that of the 24 specialties in medicine, you know where emergency medicine ranks as far as affecting drugs in the United States? 24th. We did so little, as they pointed out, that it's much better for them to send drug representatives to a family practice nurse practitioner's convention because they put people on things like Lipitor. Let me give you a number just to blow your mind. If you put a 50-year-old on Lipitor today, they will have spent, by the time they drop over dead, $24,000 on that medication. Tell me the last time you wrote anything of a prescription where anybody's going to spend $24,000 in their lifetime. You sit in an unusual position. And you know what? Keep that. Short-term, small amounts, that's the best way to stay safe in emergency medicine, I promise you. Jim, have you had any of these cases in your reviews or in your departments about this third-party badness that can occur? I think the major one we've had is the sexually transmitted diseases where the, you need to notify not only the county health department because that's a requirement in Orange County, but you also have to notify the partners of the individual with the disease. So that's fairly well known in our department, and that's pretty much what we do. Highly variable state to state. 
And I think what you have an obligation in your department to have that particular law, that statute from your state, in a book someplace, and to orient your people, your new people who are coming in, who may have gone to medical school in other states, that sort of thing, exactly what the law is. By the way, I mentioned earlier in my last talk about lapses of consciousness, and this was also a California decision. As I mentioned, this had to do with non-reporting of people who had lost consciousness seizures to the Motor Vehicle Department in California. Of the 50 states, there are only six of them that have mandatory reporting. It just so happens California is one of them. And now I know what you're tempted to do. You're tempted to say, ah, I want to be a good guy. I don't want this on his record. I don't want this or that. Understand this, no good deed goes unpunished. If you do not report, you bear some liability. And that's exactly what this discussion was that appeared in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, July 2008. So this is pretty current stuff. But what happened is they came back after the doctor on the question of did you report. And the point that I made in the earlier presentation was the doctor's insurance company may have no obligation to provide him with malpractice money because this wasn't malpractice. This was a failure to follow stated California law. So if you are violating a statute in the state of California, your insurance company can deny you that coverage. I want you to think about that carefully because in the long run, you have an obligation to protect your family, <laughs> your long-term financial interests. You know what? Nobody's going to feel bad if a doctor goes down on one of these issues for not reporting because everybody drives and uses the roads. And what they think is, if he didn't report, that could have been me or my kids who got killed. That's exactly what happened in that case. So the states they say here that have mandatory reporting are California, Delaware, New Jersey, Nevada, Oregon, Pennsylvania. Anybody have mandatory reporting in their state? So the question I have then is to Jim, how do we, as a systems issue, how as a director of a department, do you make sure that this stuff is getting done? Do you have a list on the wall or how do you, as a systems way of getting these physicians to report these things? Well, I think that's like m most of the communications between members of the department there are different ways to communicate with the physicians. There can be emails, there can be regular newsletters, there can be just educational aspects for all the physicians, but it needs to be in the computers and it needs to be posted and it needs to be written down on the chart. So it looks like I have a lot of work to do. This is absolutely a quality assurance standard. The first case we talked about, the giving out of narcotics, Somewhere on that chart, everybody who's got a narcotic, we ought to be able to pull all those charts. By the way, we do keep a list of everybody we gave a narcotic to out of the department. And somewhere on that chart, in the discharge instructions, ought to be included warnings about drinking, driving, and the use of machinery. End of the discussion. Let's just stop this problem now. Second, in a mandatory reporting state, as one of the quality assurances, it ought to be everybody with loss of, by the way, it's not just seizures, it's unexplained loss of consciousness. So how do you know they didn't have a syncopal attack? In fact, one of the cases which is out there right now is an automatic defibrillator case where the guy wasn't warned about driving and, by the way, the last time he was into his doctor, his cardiologist, they had not checked the event record 
to see whether his defibrillator had gone off. They can check the event record. They know when it's happened. So he went out, killed somebody in an auto accident. The patient, by the way, was still alive. The other two people are dead. So what they did was just check the event record and found out that he'd had a series of these where his device had gone off, and yet there was no, at least the records reflected no warnings about the fact that he should not drive till he gets back in to see his doctor. Again, when I said that medicine is complex and ugly, I'm not kidding. You live in a medical legal cesspool, and the first person you save in medicine is yourself. Think about this seriously. If that happens, I'd tell them, no, write it in the chart. And by the way, that's the other thing, write it in the chart. No driving till you've seen your cardiologist. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And you know what? People say, well, you've sort of inhibited me. You know what? I don't care. What I've got to do is I have an obligation to the wider public. We need to recognize that. How far does that go? So you're basically saying that you're an agent of the state. You are an agent of the... Oh, anytime you don't think you're an agent of the state, look and see on communicable disease, gonorrhea, HIV, child abuse, elderly abuse. You are the monitoring device of the state. Now, I don't care if you like that, what we have to do is understand what the limitation of that is. And by the way, this country is nowhere compared to some others. If you're in Germany, you go to an emergency department, you have one of two things, your passport if you're a foreigner, or you have your citizen identity card. No citizen identity card, they'll still treat you. The next person who's called is the police. You've got to remember that the healthcare system is an ultimate screen to pick up people in this country because you may avoid a lot of things for a long time but eventually everybody will be hauled into a hospital for something. This carries with it huge implications and we need to debate it openly and honestly as to what degree we are Big Brother. I got a question then. So let's say I'm working with Jim and we're seeing lots of patients and he saw a patient with syncope across the current. Jim doesn't report and I because I'm an a-hole I actually call the medical board or I call the police and say, hey, this doc over here didn't report. Are there any cases where physicians have gone to jail or been in trouble if there wasn't an event that led to a lawsuit? Mel, I've never actually seen anyone who would be that big a jerk, but could it have? It's a theory. I could be that big a jerk. You could be that big a jerk. So the state doesn't actually actively look for these cases? No. They just say, do this, and then... I know of no state which is actually going in, those six mandatory reporting states, and doing surveys of the departments on loss of consciousness patients. I've never seen that. I don't know anybody who's ever proposed that. The point is when something bad happens, then they will be around to visit you. I promise you that. And again, the point was made, are you going to have insurance money to cover you? You violated the laws of the state. You didn't buy insurance to cover violating the law. You can't buy insurance to cover violating the law. You know, the great joke on on all the TVs and the gangster movies is, I've taken out a contract on someone. Well, you can't actually take out a contract on someone because you cannot have a legally binding contract to violate the law. You can't do it. And so the insurance company says, why should we jump in when you, doctor, you knew or should have known what the reporting statutes were in your state? Now, another scenario, you didn't report and you get sued, is there any cases where I then go to my director and say, my director didn't do a good enough job at telling me what the requirements were? Yes, there is a case 
where you didn't say that, but what they did is they brought action against both the doctor and against the group. And what caused against the group is failure to supervise, failure to orient, failure to perform quality assurance, which made sure that the laws of the state of California were enforced. There are some questions. The question is raised, if there is no state statute on reporting, Michigan is a good example, where do you stand if you turn them in? Well, the point is, if there's no reporting program, in the state of Michigan, I wouldn't know who to call. If I just called up the Department of Motor Vehicles, they haven't assigned that to anybody. I don't know what they would do with it. Let me tell you what is important. In every other state, you write on the chart, patient informed of the Michigan law. And every other state has a law about loss of consciousness and driving. The Michigan law is you shall not operate a motor vehicle within six months of a loss of consciousness. That's what the law is. Now, you may say, well, that law is crazy and it's this and it's that. The point is, am I going to stop them from driving? No. I know they don't, but what I do is I've discharged my responsibility to warn and inform them. And I always do it, by the way, in front of a family member. Because I don't want that argument with a patient at some point in time, you didn't tell me. I want that so it's heard by somebody who knows. Have the nurse listen to you do it. Write down the name of anybody you told that to. But that's where I would go with this. I would clearly inform what the current state statute is, then you've discharged your responsibility. All right, there's another question here. We'll go here, sir. Yes, the question is this. If you confront a patient who, let's say, has denied alcohol use and now you've got the blood alcohol back at its serious level, have you violated their privacy? You've raised a very interesting question. This is how I would answer that. Start by having the patient alone first because they have a right to privacy. There's no question about it. You can always do this, by the way, in such a way that the patient can't refuse. If it's a 40-year-old guy, what are the chances he's going to talk to his wife about his alcohol? Two, slim and none. Okay, that's it. That's not what's going to happen. But what I could usually say is, Jim, I'd like to talk to you about some of your test results. Should I ask your wife to step out or should she remain? Now, this is a moral dilemma, isn't there? If he forces her out, I always remember this one time, I asked that question, and I said, ma'am, I have to have his permission to speak with you here. She just looked at me and she said, you have his permission. <laughs> and then I looked at him and he goes, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> I mean, the smart ER doc, you get what you want. You figure it out. You know, be careful about it. I wouldn't go blurting it out to everybody standing in that room because he does have a right to privacy. And if you're smart, you'll figure out how to involve family when they acquiesce to what's going on. By the way, always kill them with kindness. I care about you so much, I want your family to help us with a bad medical problem. There's an obvious alcohol problem. Do you have any duty to pursue that? Depends on what state you're in. Some states have passed laws where people involved in motor vehicle accidents, you have to draw the blood. Most states haven't done that. This is the encroaching view of Big Brother. Is it mandatory that you take the blood? 
We take the blood all the time for purely medical purposes. For example, if they have altered metal status, gooey and blood alcohol is part of the workup to decide, is this drugs? Do they have a subdural hematoma? What's going on here? That's part of the process. What you do with the results of that is determined by state law. By the way, whenever someone comes in, the police come in, again, it's determined by state law what you can do. Where I am in Michigan, if the police say, I want his blood alcohol, what I'd have to say is, you have a perfect right to file tomorrow and subpoena the record. But you don't have a right to just walk over to the cops and say, you know what, his blood alcohol is high. They can figure that out. They come in with their own draw kit in general. Be very careful of being the social police. This walks a very fine line in civil liberties. There's a reason why there's the Bill of Rights attached to the Constitution of the United States. This is about the scenario that uh, somebody comes to the emergency department with alternate status. He passed out, nobody knows why. You do a workup and you determine that the patient needs to be hospitalized. You don't have exactly the reason why the patient passed out. The patient gets hospitalized and he gets worked up and he gets discharged. We know of that patient when the patient went out of the emergency department, but we don't know what happened. Now, we don't really know what produced the loss of consciousness. Now, do we as emergency physicians need to report that because we don't know the reason, or the physician that actually got that patient hospitalized and treated, who has the duty to report the loss of consciousness? Yeah, if you admit a patient, it is the general consensus in the legal community around the country that you've passed on that responsibility. You've passed it on to someone, but it's been passed on to the attending physician. You can't be in charge of following up and cleaning up the mess for every human in the hospital. It is expected, if you put the patient in the hospital, the attending physician will discharge his or her responsibility correctly. If you admit them, that passes on. If you send them home, it stays with you. Can I just make one comment? All of our hospitals have risk management departments. And when you get caught during the daytime in a thorny problem, where you don't know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. You're always trying to do the right thing, but you don't know the legality of it. I think it always makes good sense to get risk management involved, have them come down, talk to them, have them interview the patient, review this, and I think that they can be extremely helpful in situations where it is difficult. We can't be expected to know all the laws. We're busy. There are many things to do in the department. Here is an opportunity to get them to help us. That's what they're there for and we should certainly take advantage of their expertise and their knowledge of the local conditions and the state conditions. My experience in most places is that they're very interested in coming down. They're very interested in talking to you about it. This is their chance to be involved in the preemptive risk management, which they like. So let's go over here. This is a medical legal question. It's a little bit of a different topic, but also medical legal. In this era of evidence-based medicine and our medical legal climate, how do we reconcile unproven therapies when there are guidelines being put forth, such as, for example, hyperbaric oxygen treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning, especially if it would involve air transport over long distances at great expense? So the general question I found very interesting, which is, do you in your department, Jim, say that your docs have to follow nationally published guidelines because if they don't, you're concerned that they're going to get in trouble? I don't think about getting in trouble. There's a number of national guidelines we participate in, sepsis, 
pneumonia, AMI, all the CMS guidelines, and I think that that's more what we're attuned to. Standard of care, it varies between attending what they feel is the appropriate care for, let's take hyperbaric oxygen. We don't have a lot of diving accidents. If there are wounds, for example, that would require that, that would be a recommendation that we would make to the attending. I don't know if I'm answering the question. The standard in hyperbarics, for example, it's pretty much determined about whether you own a hyperbaric chamber. You realize that there are fanatics on all ends of all issues. And if you're a hyperbarics guy, what do you think the standard is? Hyperbarics. If you're a hospital that owns a hyperbaric chamber and you want that thing working, then they view it that way. I agree with you, the literature is not clear in hyperbarics. And anybody who thinks that they've got this thing knocked, there are several papers which showed absolutely no improvement in carbon monoxide patients when they dove them to one or two atmospheres in the chamber. I think that the science here is developing. That's not true with certain other things. I think some of the acute coronary syndrome stuff, I mean, clearly there are things where we're moving in a direction. But I think that that's the minority of situations in medicine. I think the majority of them are not carefully worked out yet, and there's a lot of room for opinion as to what ought to be done. The problem comes when I'm working a small practice in New Mexico, and some of us will send people, fly them for this, and other of us won't. And the problem is we had a patient where a few years ago the patient wasn't sent, was treated with Typhlo-02 and did fine, sent home. A year later he came back, the same scenario, and another one of the partners flew him out for hyperbarics, and then the wife was wondering why he wasn't flown out the first time. Again, again, what you have to understand is that not all doctors view this the same way. If you got two docs, you probably got two different opinions on some of this stuff. That's the difference between doctors and lawyers. If you got one lawyer, you got as many opinions as you paid for, okay? And it's very clear that we do not all agree in medicine about how things should be handled. Even those that have been very carefully researched, if we got into some debates here about C-spine management and clearing of the C-spine, we could have a throw down, drag them out fight right here about what goes on. It's not simple. So my question then is, if guidelines don't set the standard of care, and we've talked about this before in Risk Management Monthly, who sets the standard of care? How am I supposed to know what the standard of care is? What is this airy-fairy term? Well, you understand, the standard of care in a legal action is set each time in court by expert testimony. And the court is very comfortable with conflicting standards of care. That's what the law is built on. And so if you bring in two experts, you're going to have two different views of what the standard of care is. I think most of the medical societies are very careful to label their guidelines specifically as not promulgating a standard of care. We're about to publish a book again. The Neurologic Emergencies book is going to come out for the third time. There's a new disclaimer in the front of all these books which talks about this exact issue. This book is the opinion of the authors at this moment in time. It does not purport to set a national standard of care which must be followed in all cases. And that's written right in the front of the book because all the time they read to me from the stand from my own work. And I think that they kind of put this forward like this has to be correct. You know what? It isn't. By the way, if they're reading from the first edition, which was published 22 years ago, do we still agree with that? Probably we don't. 
but you have to be very careful what gets passed off as quote-unquote standard of care. Just a comment on the AICD case is kind of worrisome. We discharge a lot of patients either from the ED or the hospital with transient arrhythmias, all of which could cause some impairment. Probably of that whole group, the one you might worry the least about is the one that does have the AICD already in place. And I don't disagree that they're probably safer than a lot of people. The point is, in the case that I mentioned, had the doctor actually checked that person's event monitor, had he done this or that, to try and determine what his frequency of loss of consciousness was. That's where that case turned. And this kind of stuff isn't going to go away. The tone in the country is changing. It was much more pro-doctor for a while. If you look at the legislatures, the various states, and certainly the National Congress right now, tort reform in the National Congress is dead. It's a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic President, all of whom are beholden to the plaintiffs' councils of the United States. This isn't going in our direction. I don't see this as any of this is going to get cleaned up. I just have a question regarding narcotics. In a patient who you treat, like for a kidney stone, you treat them with narcotics, their pain's better, and they're ready to go home, and you let them know that they shouldn't be driving, but yet they're by themselves. Do you have an obligation to call the family, or do you just let it up to the patient? It all depends on what they have and how you've handled it. Frequently, I'll look right at them and say, no shot, no medication, till I see the whites of the eyes of somebody who's driving you home. Then all of a sudden they can find somebody. That's usually pretty good. If they have been medicated, you can say, if you go outside and turn that car over, we'll call the cops. And you know what? They usually respond to that. So you have a choice. You can sit here for the next couple hours, have a cup of coffee, read a magazine, then we'll let you go. If you want to go out there and turn it over, because we warned you, we will notify the authorities, and you have a perfect obligation to do that. Because now you've got somebody driving who represents a danger to self and others. Do not worry about that situation. Yeah, at least in our community emergency department, it's very well worked out by the nursing staff. And they're like Nazis. I, mean, I don't have to lay a heavy hand of having someone A, hang around, or B, threaten them with the police because the nursing staff has already refused to let them drive home under the influence of medications that we've administered because we know where the liability lies and they take that very seriously. So in our community we have enough people with cars and enough family members to come and get them. That aside, if they don't have that, then we call a taxi. By the way, let me give you another case for your thoughts. If you haven't seen this, you're not an emergency doctor. At 11 o'clock at night, I'm sewing up a seven-year-old. Dad is standing over me. He obviously smells like alcohol, and he's weaving slightly. I know he brought the child in, and he's going to drive that child home. What's my obligation at that moment in time? And I'd be interested to hear what Mel has to say about that. Well, I wouldn't let them go home. I think we've talked about this before. Clearly, that kid is at risk. You have a scenario here in front of you where you can do it a number of different ways. If you're Billy Mallon, you'll just say, look, a-hole, you're not going anywhere. Or you could say, look, you clearly had a few drinks and that's fine. You didn't know your kid was going to get hit on the head. But you need to stay here until you've sobered up and we'll give you the coffee and we'll look after your kid and that's fine and then you can go home. Now, if the father then says, no freaking way, Doc, I'm out of here, what would you do, Jim? Uh, I'd call security. Yeah, see, the problem with calling security in a lot of hospitals 
is the security can make it down there if they've taken their artane that day. <laughs> and they kind of come down and say, ah, I'm security. What am I going to do? That's why in a smaller hospitals particularly, where security is not the best and they're not terribly aggressive, I tend to use the local police, let them wander by. I'll call them up. They'll be there in a second. And they'll just say, hi, I'm the police. By the way, we're sitting out there. We see you get in your car. We're going to turn it over. I used to have some cops where I worked that if I said, why don't you take the keys? They just take their keys and come back in two hours and give them back their keys and let them drive home. Is it a slight abuse of my letters? Yep. As far as I'm concerned, that's what my letters are for. There's a question over here. Yeah, one question I had is a lot of times in triage, blood alcohol levels and drug screens get ordered, which don't really have true clinical bearing. They're here for a cut, scrape, laceration, and things. I always wonder if that does two things. Number one, it might be an invasion of patient privacy, number one. Then, of course, creates a, a liability for you if you get back the results. And, of course, it's more expensive. So I try to not let nurses do that. But how do you handle that when you've drug and alcohol things come back that you didn't order, they got ordered in triage, and now what do you do with it? Well, in general, drug screens and alcohol should not be ordered unless they are relevant to the case at hand because you do have that problem. There is an invasion of rights. Did they notify the patient that they were taking that study for that reason? I think that that's potentially dangerous stuff. Because now what you've done is, in sort of a Nazi way, you've kind of put an onus on yourself now. What are you going to do with the result? Never ask a question you do not want to know the answer to. I never ask my wife if she's cheating on me. She seems happy, my children seem happy. What am I going to do with the results of that question? Always ask yourself that because if you're not using it to make a clinical or treatment decision, you know what? Don't ask the question. What's your duty if Jim's in a busy place and he's the director and the next day or six hours later the results come back and it shows a blood alcohol of very high and you've sent the patient home? Is there any duty on the emergency physician's part or the department's part to actually go and chase them down or make sure they didn't crash on the way home or do you just shove it under the carpet? What do you do? Fortunately, our lab, although it's different at all times, the lab is fairly efficient, so we get back the results quickly. So they knew or should have known what the results were. But we're not sending people home based on the level, the absolute level of their blood alcohol. It's a clinical condition. A lot of people are cruising around with 150, 200. That's their normal state. Their neurons have become accustomed to that, and they're doing fine. If it's lower than that, they're not going to do as well. So, Below uh, that, I shake, right. I see. Yeah. <laughs> so the issue is we've got little boxes that help our efficiency that go into great lengths explaining that with this given level of alcohol that they are clinically uh, capable of ambulating, talking, making sense, and they can be discharged, not necessarily to drive, but to be able to go home. So I think we would look at the levels that way. Your question about having a result back even though you didn't want the result, it's not what you asked for but you got, I think that's when you need to discuss with your nurse manager and the triage nurses what your goals as a department are for the care of the patients in your community. And that needs to be well worked out and established. If the physicians believe that the levels are not going to be affected, they will not be making clinical decisions based on those levels, then they shouldn't be done. And the nursing staff shouldn't have the options or opportunities to that. I want to do a follow-up on that. We'll take one more question, then we'll end it. Let's say uh, the nephrologist or the rheumatologist, uh, you're talking to them about a case, trying to organize this position, and they say, look, can you do these 30 different tests for me so they'll be available tomorrow? 
what is your duty in the emergency department to follow the results up? It might not be back for a day or two. Maybe it'll have some clinical importance. Is that your job now to follow it up? Or if I just write on the chart, Mr. Smith told me to get these tests and he's going to or she's going to follow them up. Am I done at that point? Yeah, pretty much you're done. If that's recorded on the chart, it is not a usual and customary test that comes back in the emergency department and there's been a communication with another doctor, you have transferred the liability to follow up on that test. So if he wants an ANA done on somebody, we don't look at that in the emergency department. That's not our area of expertise. What we've done is accommodated a physician who has, by asking, has acquiesced to the responsibility of taking care of that result. I've never seen the case, and I've done over 2,000 cases in emergency medicine. I've never seen that as a case if they've adequately transferred the responsibility by making a note on the chart. Never seen it in my entire career. Let's take one more question and then we'll do wine of the month, which is really the only reason to do this. Yeah, exactly series. right. Dr. Henry, a few years ago I heard you speak about an ED physician whose malpractice insurance didn't cover him during an MTAL violation. Mm. And then today we hear about a duty to third party where it was not covered. Are there any other instances that we should know about that we might not know yeah, wasn't covered by our insurance? You've raised an interesting question. Most of you have never looked at your insurance policy. You understand that. If you believe that it covers you in any situation other than your hospital, while you're seeing patients who have a chart on them, you're wrong. Most emergency policies are not like internal medicine policies. They are location-specific, they are patient-specific. Because at the end of the year, we actually look back and we come up to accommodate the charges for that year. We do it on a per-patient basis. So if you think you can go out and write a prescription for your neighbor and your insurance is going to cover that, you're just wrong. Let's say you're a good-hearted person. Let's say you want to donate your time. And I had this case. Somebody wanted to donate their time to the diabetic camp. That's a good person. That's a nice person. I like that. But what they should have done is asked their carrier to cover them for that. By the way, that's what happened the next time. But now the kid up there at the diabetic camp comes in and he's upset and he's got a belly pain and his blood sugar's up a little bit. So they wait till morning to relook at him and now he's got appendicitis. And now the family brings action against the patient. Sorry, the carrier is not going to defend that case. You didn't pay for the premium on that case. You didn't make a chart on that case. Why should they be obligated to defend that case? You tell me why. I'll just tell you right now, that's an area where physicians do not understand what their coverage is. Just to add a little bit to that, when you're doing something, if it's medically related, outside of your department, the first thing that you should ask, whether it's a good person or not, is are you covered, are the people, the diabetic camp, for example, are you covered for your volunteer work at that camp? And if you're not, then I think you have to reassess quite realistically, if you're going to do that or not, you'll be uncovered. And that the same thing applies for any administrative work that you may or may not be doing. By the way, this happens in small towns when a doc shows up to be the team physician. See, if you're there and something happens and you go out, you're covered under Good Samaritan. There's never been a case of that, at least in the state of Michigan, where a doc showed up on the field, no previous requirement, shows up, takes care of things, not a problem. If you've decided you're now the team physician and you get free tickets, admission, and that sort of thing, it could be considered that you had a relationship 
before this accident or whatever happened, before you decide to become the team physician, I would certainly ask my carrier about this, or if the school system has a policy, get a copy, and here's a phrase that you all ought to know, the declaration page of the policy, and actually see what it covers. No declaration page, sorry folks, no nothing. And the smart guy does not put his children's college fund at risk without asking those kinds of questions. All right, let me ask you one last question before we're done then. What insurance should I have then, just as general insurance as a doc, with a house and a car and a dog, to cover some of these other circumstances? Is there some umbrella policy? Is there something I should have? Is there a magic thing I'd need to call when I get home to get? Yeah, what you can do is if you're going to work for any organization, you ought to check and see what their coverage is. I have actually arranged for various people in my organization who did some of these things. I called the carrier and said, this guy's doing the work for Jesus. Actually, it wasn't for Jesus because it was a Jewish camp, but he was doing something like that. And I said, we're going to extend him coverage for this because we give you a lot of business. And they said, okay. And I said, you send me a letter. I want a letter to put in his folder that says we will cover him as if he's at the emergency department here at St. Joe's. And then they said to me, and he's going to keep a record of everybody he sees. I said, okay, done deal. And we worked it out. But you ask these questions in advance. Don't ask them later. What about non-medical things though? I'm going to drive back from Vegas to LA and I get sleepy and I run over a busload of school children and I get sued. Is there anything I can do, any insurance that I can have that says, please don't take my house, my car and everything? Well, Mel, you could plead insanity <laughs> and probably get away with it. I was uh, drunk. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, how could I figure that out? This seminar is not about all insurance problems, but clearly there are umbrella policies you can get to cover certain of these things. By the way, it depends on what state you're in, but most of your primary residences are not attachable in lawsuits. Your retirement plans are not attachable. Your children's educational trusts, if properly set up, are not part of your estate. And so every emergency doc who's got reasonable money needs to sit down with somebody and go through that list and make sure you get things out of your estate. We got a question over here. All right, well, Mike's burning. This is the last question. Last question. This is the last question. I'd like everybody to realize we volunteer to be on boards in our communities. I volunteered to be on a medical malpractice board. And lo and behold, I only went to three meetings, and a lawsuit was against this board that I was on. And I'm faced with a $20 million lawsuit. I went to my million-dollar carrier that I have an umbrella policy with. They will not cover me. So if you serve on a board of any kind, this is very important that you find out if you're covered. Thank you. That's an excellent point. And these days, you realize people like the Boy Scouts of America are having trouble getting anybody to serve on the boards unless they buy what they call directors and officers insurance to cover that exact specific thing and you should have it in the hospital. By the way, in your hospital for your administrative work on committees, the hospital will have a policy that covers you. And if you don't think that you couldn't get sued exactly as that gentleman did because you denied a cardiologist calf privileges or something like that, Absolutely you could. Now we have one more question and we're going to call us to a halt.
If you reluctantly help out during an airplane flight and something bad happens, are you covered under the Good Samaritan yes. laws? I yes. heard you can be sued, though. There's no place that's going to let that suit be filed. If it's true Good Samaritan, and there's three parts to Good Samaritan. Number one, you did not send a bill. Number two, you did not have a prearranged doctor-patient relationship of any kind. And number three, you just sort of came upon the situation. There is no case in the United States where anybody has been sued for acting in that manner. And here's why. No judge wants to file that case, because the day that case is filed, what are every one of you going to do? Do nothing. This sets social policy. If that's the policy that the people of the United States want, well, screw them. Then we're going to do nothing. Don't worry about that. If you come upon a problem, just jump into it. You would have to do something unbelievably crazy for them to have any chance of filing any kind of piece of paper because no judge wants that on his record that he destroyed the ability to function and something like that in the United States. None of them want that. Wasn't that modified recently that we talked about the Good Samaritan laws basically covered you as long as you did a reasonable job and now they've made it even better. You basically have to hack the person's head off with a crowbar in order to get sued over these. It has to be willful and wanton which means unless you leave the body in the hallway with a knife in it and they came to you with a hangnail, you're probably free from suit because there's no money in it. No, again, no judge wants that in his court. I promise you that. All right, now here's the most important part of what we do on Risk Management Monthly. It's the wine of the month. And as uh, we've talked about on the cardiovascular risk protection, this is not about wine. This is about the medicine. Exactly right. So what medicine are we drinking? The medicine month? we're going to drink this month, Mel, is Chateau Saint-Jean, which is a California wine, a white wine, which Parker has again named a 93. And you can buy this stuff for 22 bucks a bottle. It rates exactly with the same bottles from the same region of California, which are at 80 90 and and $100 a bottle. In fact, it's a higher rating than some of those that are $115 a bottle. Chateau Saint-Jean, 2005, the Chardonnay Beltaire. I would recommend it to all of you. Outstanding. Jim, tell us where you work. I have the good fortune to work at the community hospital in Southern California, Orange County, at St. Joseph of Orange and the Children's Hospital of Orange County. And we have had a steadily increasing growth in our volume over the years. We started in 1976 seeing 20 patients a day this calendar year, we'll see over 107,000 visits for the two hospitals, combined emergency departments. So That's impressive. It's a busy, busy place, 53 beds. Claudia, gold is our quality assurance leader. Uh, and I hope you got a lot of this down, Claudia, so that uh, <laughs> you know, we can improve our practice as always. But very fascinating stuff. And I think you're famous because you were Rick Bucutter's senior at USC. Uh, not true. Rick was a year ahead of me at oh. uh, L.A. County. So, yeah. So he was your senior. Did he, he teach was, you anything? Or did you, all you guys back then didn't know anything well, anyway? We didn't know, yeah, exactly. We didn't like, know a hell of a lot. And, uh, <laughs> we, you know, there were times where we couldn't find a senior. We never could find an attending, but, you know, the seniors were loose too. But, no, Rick was a very bright guy then, and he's still a very bright guy. We owe a lot to him. Thank him for the opportunity to speak with you, Mel, and Greg. Talk to the audience as well. It's been a privilege, quite frankly. And I, like you, hope we've learned a lot. And listeners, we will be back to you next Next month. month. Thanks, and bye for now. Bye. 
Well, the fact is, uh, that was a lie. It was a lie because uh, that's only 60 minutes of this 80-minute CD. So right now we're going to go back to John Lyman, who we spoke to last month about uh, what we do with templates and contracts and this kind of stuff. And then we're going to get Rick on the phone and do a few letters before we finish this thing off. So here we go, uh, John Lyman. This is where we really have to keep up with the literature because if I looked at 10 years ago and febrile children... We were tapping those up to six months of age kind of thing. Now that's dropped down to about two weeks of age. And so the workup of fever in kids has actually been liberalized to a very great degree. We probably do less to kids now than we did 10 years ago. So these templates have to have some correlation with where the literature is at that moment in time. Yeah, I'd like to say they're living templates, and we do review them. I'd like to think they're as up-to-date as you're referring to, but they're certainly reviewed on a yearly basis. Can I ask approximately how many of those you have? This year, we're looking at four chief complaints. We pull a number of charts for each of those four complaints for each physician. John, I think Rick's asking a little different question, and that is, how big is the basket? Do you have 16 templates? Do you have 24 templates? I mean, how many of these have you worked out? over the years that you have to convey to your doctors when they come on board? We've looked at the top. I honestly don't know the answer to exactly how many, but we've gone down and picked what we consider the top high-risk things that I think we'd all agree in, the belly pain and the elderly, the infant that you referred to. Sudden onset headaches, etc. Right, right. Somebody joins the group then, here's how we do business in terms of the clinical aspects and this is our expectations with regards to chest pain and whatever that list is. Understand that's a double-edged sword because it's not truly a risk management document. And so in many states, that might be both discoverable and admissible at the time of trial. If you're going to have a template, you're going to have a checklist, and you don't follow your own checklist, that can occasionally show up as something against you. Greg, you uh, bring up a good point here. If you have independent contractors, it would seem that that may be an issue in terms of, well, yeah, here's your expectations of your behavior, but you're acting as an independent contractor. Or how much leeway do you have in terms of telling an independent contractor how to do business? Aren't they supposed to bring their own tools and their own methodologies? Are your physicians contractors or employees? We're an employee model. We do have a few independent contractors, but the majority of our physicians are Do you think that enters into this at all, Absolutely it does. But remember that the vast majority of emergency docs in the country are either salaried employees of the hospital, for example, the academics, the university people, the big hospitals, the Henry Fords of Detroit, or they are secondary contractors. A group has a contract, and then they will be employment contracts with that group. That's the model which we have in Ann Arbor, and I know that's the model you have. I think the number of true independent contractor statuses is relatively going down in the United States, and that's because of the various states. State of Michigan wants to have one entity it can go to to collect for things like workman's comp, all these other sorts of things. They don't want 500 docs they've got to chase after. What they want is one entity they can go to and get the check from. Yeah, California is different, and that's why I'm kind of my perspective is all of our doctors are independent contractors. The state of California does not allow hospitals to hire doctors to provide direct medical care, 
every one of those relationships is an independent contractor relationship. And that's true at the university centers as well? I don't think that that's true at the university centers, but I'm talking about community emergency departments. Right, because certainly the California doctors I know who are at USC, who are at UCLA, they get a check from the university. And it's just like any other employment model. It's lost on me the nuances of why that should be different from a big private hospital to a university center. People come in, they're sick, doctors look at them. I don't know why they do that. But under the employment model, it doesn't sound like your issue about here's how we expect you to work. No, it's not. We don't sit down with the physicians to say this is exactly how you need to work up the patients. When we do these audits and we think there's important information to be garnered if you're going to evaluate, for example, an elderly person with abdominal pain. And that's part of our template as we look at that. And we will feed that information back to the physician say, you know, I think it may have been important. There's nowhere in the chart that I can see, did you look for a pulsatile mass? And so we'll feed that information back to the physician. What's the word on your outline? Is it say, here are the rules? Does it say this is a guideline? Because most of what we do, if you look at the ASAP publications, they never say this is the way you handle chest pain. What they say is, here's a guideline understanding that each individual, see, we practice medicine in general from textbooks. The specific practice on a patient depends on what that patient looks like. Well, most people are clever enough to use the terminology that's not going to paint them into a legal corner on this stuff. John, do you have any policies that relate to, some of this is everybody has them, like the x-ray review policy, the lab review policy, the handing the EKG to the doctor policies, things like that that you think that your group does that you think are outside the ordinary in terms of them being particularly clever? The short answer is no. I suspect a lot of what we do in regards to the items you do, hopefully everybody would do that. We have a time marker that pretty much is constant through all of our hospitals. It's when an EKG is done, how soon it has to be delivered to the physician. That's an expectation. And I realize these are hospital employees, but if the EKG is not delivered, that information is fed back. We certainly look at x-ray discrepancies at, at all of our sites. And if there are any x-ray discrepancy, we'll be followed up on, some of which will have medical implications, many of which don't, but then needs to be fed back to the physician. This was an error. You're reading this film. This was a whatever. One of the areas we find is that when a discrepancy comes back or a lab report comes back or a culture report comes back, the doc's busy. They go on his stack, and the nurse has put the chart together with that or the follow-up person. But maybe during that shift, he doesn't get a chance to call or he doesn't take the time to call. And now we've got another eight hours. And now it's sitting there when the next doc comes on. And now he's mad that it hasn't been taken care of the other one. And he's not aggressive about taking care of this as well. I was saying, Greg, that there are discrepancies and there are discrepancies. And the ones that need to be dealt with immediately cannot wait for the shift to get around and care how busy the doctor is. And we certainly see those occasions. I think the positive blood culture for staff probably ought to be taken care of this week and not next week. Correct. Correct. But there are others that certainly, you're right, that in a busy day, there will be blood cultures that mean absolutely nothing, that are a discrepancy according to the lab by their rules, and we'll get to those at the end of the day. John, I want to thank you for taking this time with us. Much appreciated. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Greg, anything further? All I can say is I'm in awe. Well, to give our subscribers their full 80 minutes of content, we were a little short. And so Greg and Mel and I 
are on the telephone here uh, to give you everything that you deserve. I'm sorry that I was not able to attend the, uh, the last recording, which was done at the uh, Essentials course, 700 plus attendees, but my son was getting married and it doesn't happen too often. And so I appreciate the uh, forbearance of my colleagues here in letting me go. It could happen quite frequently from now on. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh God, oh God, please no. Yeah, wasn't that the line from Mel that if I don't make this wedding, I'll make the next one? So I... <laughs> We have a couple of things. One of them is Dr. Virginia Knight wrote in and said uh, she took some offense regarding something that was written in one Umbridge, of our that. Umbridge, right. Uh, it related to the fact that uh, Greg probably made some callous remark regarding um, <laughs> bringing your wife to court when you are sued and you're attending your trial. And she said, you know, a lot of us are emergency physicians or women. And um, we did apologize to her, but I think we should formally acknowledge that that was a mistake. I was going to say, as an Australian, you expect that from me. Well, she said, you know, this is part of the old boys club. Well, I'm afraid Greg and I are, are, are part of the old boys club, uh, whether we like it or not. You are not, Mel, you're not there yet. But anyway, let's move on. We're sorry about that, Virginia. And we will be more sensitive in the future. Here's a letter from uh, Dennis Hughes, actually an email. He said, uh, our hospital system has formulated a new policy that prohibits the ED staff from notifying any police authority in cases of impaired patients, like uh, a drunk who leaves in his automobile. They specifically indicate the the number of the cases where you can and should notify the police, like a gunshot wound or a motor vehicle accident with suspected intoxicated patients, but an escape convicts, that's, that's allowed as well, good to know, and uh, suicidal and homicidal patients. Uh, Greg, what's your thoughts on that? He's concerned. Well, I think there are two issues here, Rick. There's the moral question, and God, I hate to... Uh put moral issues in a medical legal series because that would assume that there's some morality in the law. But the bottom line is, if you feel uncomfortable with a patient leaving that they may, by virtue of their condition, constitute danger to self or others, I think this is a moral issue. The second issue is a legal one. If the hospital wants to take this position that you can't or should not notify when you have a patient in jeopardy, I hope they're willing to sign a letter of indemnification back to you and your insurance company, which says straight out, here's what we forbid, and should there be any medical legal action, we will assume all costs, pay all charges. What I don't want to see the doctor uh, doing is putting himself at financial risk, and, and quite frankly, I think there's a moral risk here. And I think this issue ought to be debated in front of their, the executive committee of the hospital, not just the administrator who may have some short-term interest here. But remember, hospitals change administrators more often than a lot of our patients change their underwear. So I think that the board of the hospital ought to go on record and sign this thing. And quite frankly, I don't understand it. Why yeah. would you let people drive... Um, who who constitute a danger to the rest of us on the road. It makes no sense. Well, maybe they'll run into the hospital administrator. (laughs) (laughs) Only if we're lucky, Rick. (laughs) I'd like to apologize to all the hospital administrators. Okay, there come the letters. Well, you know, it's their their fault. They're doing this kind of uh, policy here. It's generally better to err on the side of safety. I don't know how you can go wrong by, by intervening to protect 
the, the public in general and your specific patient individually, I mean, I just don't think there's a downside there. And if there is a downside, I guess I'd like that hospital administrator or administration to, to write to us to uh, ask to appear here on the show and we'll debate the issue because I'm not sure in the light of day in the general public anybody would agree with that policy. Okay, well then, Dennis uh, Hughes, please ask your hospital attorney to uh, kind of um, clarify for this, give us some citations that suggest why this policy has been adopted, or they're more than welcome to get on uh, the phone with us. The uh, other thing that uh, came up was a, a note from, I'm not exactly sure, this, this is a doctor, his first name's Rob, and it might be Woody, but in any case, he's from Toledo, and I've spoken to Rob Woody, and uh, he's, a, he's a great guy, and by the way, he listens to us religiously, and he brings all these issues to his group and his hospital administrator. But I think that, that this one is a good issue. Go ahead, Rick. Read the letter. Well, basically, he wanted a clarification. He said in the tape that we did regarding So You've Been Named, don't discuss the case with anybody because those people could be dragged in as well and said, what did you talk about, etc. And he said, well, what happens if you have a bad case? There's no lawsuit been generated as yet because it's too new. What about talking to your colleagues? It's going to be just natural that that happens. And Greg? Yeah, no, no, I have a lot of thoughts on this. The first one is clearly once a summons and complaint or a notice of intent has arrived, you never discuss this uh, with anyone uh, other than, than counsel or those people involved in quality assurance risk management. But secondly... What you can do is in the vast majority of states, quality assurance materials are protected from two things, discoverability and admissibility. So make everybody in the department a member of the quality assurance committee. Make any discussion about a patient a quality assurance discussion. That way, when they ask you in deposition, and I've probably been asked this several hundred times in depositions. Uh, doctor, have you discussed this case with anyone? As soon as you hear that, what you know is they're setting you up so that they can go find this person and see what you had to say. And the, your answer should be, I have discussed this case with no one outside of the uh, of the realm of quality assurance, which you understand, counsel, is protected under state law. And that way, you don't have to release any names or carry on any discussion. The other thing you can do is always change the facts of the case and say to a friend, if you want to discuss a case, look, I had this particular problem. Here are some general parameters, but I'm not using the name of a patient or the specifics of the case. But what would you do with X, Y, or Z? Uh, but I think we need to be very careful about casual conversation about patients and, and about what they would or would not do, because I promise you this, uh, anybody who's had a depth taken on a case will know that that question, have you discussed this with anyone, does come up. Yeah, this is important well, I, because this is not on our radar. If you ask the average resident, the average attending out there, their community, academic, if you told them that, and hopefully we're telling them now, I think they'd be shocked. I wasn't really aware of that. I thought this was just well, something I, you did. You see, the problem is, if you've given enough depositions and read enough depositions, you know that this will come up. I mean, if, if you speak to the people around the country who really do a lot of this work, it's asked in virtually every deposition. And I don't believe in lying. 
I mean, I don't think you lie in a deposition. This is bad precedent, and it's bad for the immortal soul. Do not lie. But So what you do is you protect the material in advance by declaring everybody a member of quality assurance, and any discussion is a quality assurance meeting. And just do it that way. Because well, Greg, I think, yeah, go ahead. Greg, that, honestly, that doesn't sound like a very practical approach to, to do this because these are conversations held in the uh, – in the hallway, there are conversations between you and your colleagues because you're a little concerned and upset about a case that went went sour, and to, and to say, okay, we're all, we can't discuss this unless we have it in the setting of a meeting. That's just not going to happen. I think the second option that you gave makes um, a lot more sense. Maybe a little bit more dangerous, but makes a lot more sense. And to make this discussion extraordinarily generic and focus in on the um, medical issues, but there's no names. There's no, that was my case. It was just a generic question. Have you seen a case where this has occurred? What would you have done in those cases? That seems to be a much more practical approach to this doctor's question. Understand not, that not most that I of want to criticize you, of course. I would never criticize the, the sage, but there is this issue of how practical is the suggestion that you've made. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's agree that we don't think that lying is a good idea. Can we all well, agree with that? Well, not so fast. So, yeah. So the next, yes. So the next, yeah. Assuming Bill Clinton isn't on the phone call, we agree that that's not the way to go. So what I'm suggesting is be aware that this question can and will be asked. So know what you're going to say about it in advance. And by the way. Nobody's going to practice 30 years, or in my case, 33 years, and not have this question asked. It won't happen. So you might as well know what you're going to say about it. And by the way, most docs, when they ask you a question like, what would you have done with this case? They're not looking for information. They're looking for absolution. Oh, we understand and, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so if you would like to cross them and, and do a dominus vobiscum thing, that's fine. But understand, the best thing you can do is to have never held that conversation outside the realm of quality assurance because somebody, and I know I have very good colleagues in emergency medicine who don't lie and are going to say, yeah, I discussed it with a few of the guys and they think X. That's what you don't want to say in deposition. Gotcha. All right, one and all, uh, that is the 10-minute uh, supplement that we, uh, we felt obligated to uh, give you. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. See you guys. Bye-bye.